Well, you have to believe in yourself, and you have to be willing to take the advice of others, and you have to find an awfully good banker. Good. That's Clarine Law's number one piece of advice for a successful business and happy, contented life. Hey, I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you're listening to Women in Wyoming, where I profile inspiring and influential women around the state and learn about their lives, journeys, and how they got to where they are today. This time, a self-made businesswoman and community leader who attributes her success to the support of others. I talk with Clarine Law about how she grew her first 17-room motel in Jackson, Wyoming into an empire, her commitment to service, and why she feels her greatest achievement in life is her relationship with people. Here's Clarine. You know, I, that's how I think. Perfect. I'm going to tell you how I think today. Okay, go ahead and speak into that mic for me one okay. more time. All right. Now, am I about the right distance from the mic perfect. now? Okay. That sounds perfect. Sure. We'll start off. I'll have you tell me your name, please. Well, my name is Alta Clarine Law. I was born July 22nd, 1933, in the little community of Thornton, Idaho, in my great-grandmother's home. My dad was a road construction worker. My mother was a little farm girl. My mother had lost her own mother and was, had to drop out of school after eighth grade. She was busy raising her brothers and little sister. My father was building a road up by Rexburg, and he was not much of a religious guy, but he knew where the good girls were. So he and his friend rented a car and went to the little Mormon church where my mother attended. And he gave my mother a little kiss. He was a little red-headed 17-year-old. He said, I will be back in the spring, and I'm going to marry you. And she slapped him. But he did, and they were married 55 years before his death. We traveled with Dad as he built highways all over Idaho and somewhat in Oregon. They had eventually had five children. One died in infancy. We got measles and we lived in Idaho Falls. My beautiful little five-year-old sister died from measles. Terrible time. And then we went to Birch Creek out there and by the Salmon Lemhi Rivers. And we, got, we went kind of wild, climbing in Indian caves and going to a one-room school and all of those things while Mother kind and Dad kind of healed from the loss of that child. It was the war years, you know. The years of rationing and Mom ran the bunkhouse and the cook shack for the construction crew. Once in a while, we would take the rationing coupons accumulated from everybody, and we would go to Idaho Falls for the shopping trip. So I was raised like that as a nomad a bit, and I had gone, moved 21 times, I believe, before I settled down in high school, going to one-room schools and various schools around the state of Idaho. What about that experience and your upbringing influenced you? What I see from that is I see that I became I think I became a lot more competitive because my mom and dad would see that we were cleaned up in fresh clothes and, and we'd be at whatever school was nearby as we moved. We'd have to enter the domain of others. But it made me sensitive to the needs of others and it also made me probably more competitive. I worked at the Times News. That was formative also. The Times News in Twin Falls, Idaho, right out of high school. Because I really was a business person there, I learned a lot about business, and then I went to Idaho State College for a year and a half, where I met my first husband. He was a professor's son, and eventually he went to teach in Cedar City, Utah, 
where I worked for the school district, and on down to Moab, Utah, where I decided because I'd had some experience with newspapers, albeit I was probably selling ads, I decided to write. And so I wrote and was a stringer for the Grand Junction Dredge Sentinel, the Moab Times Independent, the Denver News, uh, Deseret Industries, Deseret News, excuse me. And I was also the UPI, United Press International Representative in Moab. Moab probably was most formative because I um, was clerk of the court. It was a little community. It was the days of the uranium boom. It was an exciting time in Moab. So you had some formidable experiences in business, it sounds like, when you were growing up. I did. I had some things that really formed me in business. I'd love, I'd love business. You know, back when I was a little kid, I had a babysitting business, for instance, and I, I just found that I loved doing those things, and I loved working with people. And women, women really taught me a lot. They were strong women. My mother was a strong woman, teaching me I could do anything that I wanted to do. She was in, in my church, a Relief Society president, and she'd say, oh, Sister Owens needs your kindling split. Oh, would you run down and paint the fence of Sister Matilda. And, and I found that the service that she did, preparing great meals for the ward members or whatever she was doing, brought her a lot of inner happiness. And I saw in my mother the continuum of life, really. We're, we're taught to develop self-respect for others and for ourselves. And in so doing, this continuum of happiness is what it is, of good and happiness and intelligence, we will. But mom actually hit, has, was my model for that sort of thing. Service is such a huge part of your mm-hmm. life and what you're known for. And would you say you got my mother, mm-hmm. really? She always had, she had a slogan that said, "You'll only have what you become," and you know it's true. Look at all this junk around; it doesn't mean anything. The relationships you have with others is what counts. So talk to me about your journey to Jackson okay. and okay. How, where you first started. He had an opportunity. My first husband was Franklin K. Meadows. And he had an opportunity to go to Ledor, Idaho as a superintendent or to come here as a guidance counselor. He decided to come to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And we were later divorced. And I married Creed Law. And that was back in 19, oh, it's 43 years ago. Okay. When I first came here, John Wirt and Jess Wirt had decided to sell the Wirt Hotel. And so this would have been uh, 1959 or 60. And they came calling because they needed somebody to take inventory and to type the inventory and to type some contracts. And I typed those contracts and did that inventory. And they had a bookkeeper, and she quit. Now they said, would you be our bookkeeper? I said, I don't know how to be a bookkeeper. (laughs) They said, we'll help you. They taught me, but I still didn't know double entry books. There was no internet. So I bought a LaSalle accounting course and learned double entry books, keeping from that. And I ultimately did become their bookkeeper for a while. It was a very dignified thing at the Wirt in those days. I loved the Wirt Hotel. They brought a very dignified manager. His name was Harold Yeager. But but he required that we go to the dining room and eat lunch and look like somebody. So we did. And, but he didn't look particularly like children. And I had by then I had Cherise, and she was, the kids were about five years apart. 
and they would get sick and they'd have this and that. And it was hard for me. I'd actually have to bring them sometimes to work and put them in a room so I could continue working. And uh, it became quite hard. So one day while I was having lunch in the dining room, like I was supposed to, not having really time to eat, but in came Moy Nethercott. And he said, I'm going to put her on the block, meaning the old Antler Motel, where I still have my office today. He said, uh, I, I took a gasp that morning. I think I'd been lugging Sharice down to the babysitter through the storm or who lived up on Snow King, and the roads weren't well maintained. And so I was always walking down there, lugging her and, and dragging a five or six-year-old to kindergarten. So I said, oh, let me try. You stepped into this world of hotels somewhat by chance, both from your typewriting skills and from That's then right. stepping up as a bookkeeper. That's right. Did he come to you specifically with that, or yeah, was that yeah, just did. a general statement? Well, no, I think, I think it was more of a general statement, mm-hmm. frankly. And I said, let me try. Well, my husband and I had very little means, Franklin and I. I think we had $5,000. We lived in garages. We lived whatever when we first came to Jackson. Housing is not totally new for a problem here. My sweet folks were blue-collar workers. They said, we can't give it to you, sis, but we'll be your partner. So I think they'd save $10,000. I think we put together something like $20,000 to begin to buy the original antler, which is $125,000. I was, at that time, 27 years old. Was there any doubt in your mind at that time when you were pulling all this money together, or was it pure excitement? My mom always said, you, think you can do it. And my dad was more of a naysayer, you know, that's hard. And anyway, that's what we did, and we got going. So we began with 12 old cabins that had 10 shower stalls, very minimal. And then I invented a slogan which said, service above facility, because I sure didn't have much in the way of facility. Tell me about those early days. What was it really like as you were starting to build your business? It was really hard. My husband was teaching school, and then he later went away to get his doctorate. My mom and dad retired, and they came and helped with the children. Else, I couldn't have done it. And then they would, my dad had had a heart attack by then, but they would sort laundry, and mom ran that desk beautifully for years. I, I have the, we didn't have computers. You had a reservation book and handwritten, and she did that beautifully until my dad's health was failing, and one day she said, Clarine, I know you need me, but I have to go. Can you imagine living in the back room, three children eventually? The front room was also the office. And eventually we acquired the service station right next door to us. You could make nine cents a gallon margin if you sold gas. And there was no all-night station. So I actually would sell gas at night. I quit doing that when they rang the bell and I was so tired. By then, Steve was a baby, and I used to rock him in a cradle by pulling a string because I wanted to stay asleep. But I'd go out and sell gas at night. And one time I fell down, hit the door so hard I was so tired. Sometimes you'd want to sit down and cry because there were 17 rooms to be cleaned. And there were days that I cleaned most of those, and I rented them again at night. And I remember the pride, though. I remember getting a little Nash Rambler station wagon. I remember painting Antler Motel on the side and going to a family reunion and feeling really proud. When you made it past that, that initial survival phase where you're just you know, trying to scrape by, you're doing everything you can, when, when did it start to work? 
Well, I believe I discovered the Small Business Administration with the U.S. government. I believe that uh, I wanted to go ahead and we'd bought the lot next door. That is somewhat of a story in itself. I'd, it was a struggle to buy those lots, but somebody looked out for us in Pyramid Oil that owned the service station, those lots, and we were able to first buy that three lots back. And I had uh, gone to the Small Business Administration in Casper, Wyoming. I had gone over to the bank here in Jackson. At that time, Felix Buckenroth's dad, Buck, was still running the bank. And he was a, I think he must have came from Germany, as I recall. But I said I wanted to borrow $98,000 to build this first 20 rooms. And he looked at me, he said, V don't loan to no motels. V loan on cows. <laughs> Seeing the dejection I had and felt, you know, I had little Steve in my arms, and he said, "He said, but I know a friend in Casper, Wyoming. They gave me an early in, early out loan with SBA. I later became an SBA counselor for for businesses, and that ninety-eight thousand allowed us to build that first twenty units on the back, which still we rent there today." That gave us the old 17 units plus those 20, and that's when we began to be able to grow. And before I married Creed in early 70s, I built half of a building, and we were able to buy the service station and build the other half. My father, of course, was a blue-collar wage earner, and I wanted to expand, so he didn't want to be part of it, and so I developed another corporation called Old West Corporation, is that freedom for you to do that? Well, it it was something that I felt a little bit about about because, you know, I don't I never wanted to go against my dad, but in order to grow, I had to be able to to grow, and that's how we did. But you think of the growing years there when it was the support of the whole community. It was the support of the Wirt brothers that believed in me to hire me. It was the support of Teton Motor Hotels management that believed in me to help me become a bookkeeper. It was the support of a community, but that support, it was a time when we all had to serve together. Together we served to make this community grow. You don't think it's like that anymore? I think that it still is, but I think the core is getting tarnished. I really do. There wasn't a corner in town I couldn't have owned, but I learned that you the only way you do things, you don't do things alone. In my case, it was the support of my family. You know, I don't know anything about large business. I never will. I really know more about growing family businesses. And when, as we develop those things, we develop together. But my illustration is that I didn't do that stuff. It was all of us. I, it was not me. It was kids that sacrificed and slept on the floor sometimes while I rented their bed because Jackson was so impacted. It was the neighbors down the street that kept their vacancy sign on for me all night. There's no such word as just me. I. It is all of us. And that forms, you know, the old thing. It takes a community. Well, it takes everybody in my life to make what I am today. You know, 55 years ago when you bought the antler mm-hmm. and started with those 17 rooms. Oh. And now, would it be fair to say that you're like a self-made millionaire? You know, I never think of it that way. I think the accomplishment I've had is my relationship with people and recognizing their worth, and so they recognize my worth. I had a birthday here recently where I turned 84, and on my birthday, which is in July, we have traditionally had a family 
of employee party. There were over 100 employees that came, and proudly, I can tell you that I knew just about everybody's name, and that's a point of pride. And that's how, you ask how we grew. We grew with employees. I think that they feel like they're part of our family because they are. And any success we enjoy is because of two things, employer loyalty and employee loyalty. And that includes the Hispanic, Eastern Bloc, and first of all, our American workers. You should bring light and dignity into every life. And that seems to have been a pretty major, that is a pretty major life philosophy it for is. you. What does that mean? It means that I want to be respected and I want to respect others. And that's the way that a good business runs. One time I was participating in a seminar that said, how do we make large business act more like small business? And that's the way you do it. It's respect. So you've become a mentor for so many people. Can you tell me about sure just I can. your mentoring background? Well, and my, my father, we moved construction all the time. I had very little esteem growing up. I was a chubby little kid that had to move all the time. And I think that the quest to build confidence and self-confidence, I always think of the scriptures to love the Lord, the God, with all your might, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I've always had the philosophy that you could not really do justly by your neighbor if you didn't build self-esteem in yourself. And it's very difficult to do, and I had a difficult time doing that from my background. So I think that mentoring came very naturally to me because of the fact that I felt I had been mentored by those that gave me the strength to build the confidence I needed to proceed. Mm. And did you, so when did you feel like you mm. were starting to build that confidence? Most of my confidence came from industry. Uh, developing competency at one time, I couldn't even type very well now, but developing some areas of competency is what, that, so that you can believe in yourself. For my mother, was hanging out a clean wash that all matched, crocheting, making clothing. I did it once to prove that I could, but I certainly am not a seamstress. For me, it was learning double-entry bookkeeping and the what it takes to be good in business. I remember particularly one thing that back in the war years, when I was a child and I was extremely anxious, you know, my grandparents had stars in the window, but servicemen, would they come home, would they not? You know, I was walking across a bridge in Salmon, Idaho, when we got news, it was on a Sunday, coming back from church, pushing a bicycle. When Pearl Harbor happened, I was walking to the old Twin Falls school when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, we were saying, we don't want war, they don't want war, therefore there'll be no war, but there was a war. And there were, you know, I came up in those years. And my mom, I remember getting a hold of me, and she said, now, the only contentment you're going to find is in your own heart. I said, you have to rely on just on a, inner strength to be contented with these things. It's going to be all right. It will be all right. And this is my little mom that lost two children, lost her mother young and stuff. But she had that inner strength and an inner happiness. I've been a happy person because I was able to kind of get a hold of myself as an anxiety child with my background. Your mom sounds like she was such a wonderful mentor. Well, my mother, you. I've always wondered why. You always wonder why in the scope of life. Daddy had passed away. That was her prince for 55 years. And then mom, doggone it, she had a stroke. And she thought she could get better for a few years, and then she kind of gave up. 
and it paralyzed her right side. And it was a very, very difficult transition out of this life. She passed away at 87. And I was down at the legislature, but my husband and my children were here. And I had beloved employees that were there with her. And uh, I've always wondered why that she had to go through that. But she was a great strength in my life. But the last few years were not the very best. So shifting gears just slightly, you served 14 years in the legislature. What was the inspiration for wanting to serve? Oh, you know, seeing opportunity. Not opportunity just in business, but seeing the opportunity to be part of this developing. For instance, I served on the first planning commission. Nobody wanted zoning, good heavens. To think of zoning in this little hamlet was impossible. So I served on that, and then Steve was in high school by then, and they developed something they called the Blanc system, and I didn't like what they were doing over the high school. I went out to school board, and I said that I voiced my concerns, and one of the smart alecks stood up and said, well, if you don't like it, why don't you run? So I thought about it, and I was too busy, but it made me just mad enough that I came back and I organized a little committee and I ran and I and we went campaigning and I won and I didn't know what I'd won because it was quite it was quite a lot of turmoil in those days in the school board and uh, they were voting against each other rather than voting for issues it seemed to me anyway I eventually became chairman of the board on the school board and then I was relaxing at home when Dottie Hodges, who worked at the county office, began talking about the legislature. I didn't know much about the legislature. And H.L. Jensen was a friend of mine. He was a Democrat, but he'd been there as a majority, and now they're a minority, and he was going to retire. And I didn't realize the structure of the legislature. I hadn't thought about it. Grant said Clarine said she might run, and they brought me chicken. I was homesick, and they brought me some chicken soup, and I ran against my good friend Leslie Peterson. Well, by then, you know, I was, uh, I think, 56, 57 years old, and I won. And Sharice was a lawyer by then. She gave up that and came home. I mean, there'd been a lot of sacrifice. Steve was scheduled to go, actually, to Harvard. He, he did very well on the LSAT and was headed for an Ivy League, but they came home. And that's how I went to the legislature, and that's how I did have the time to devote you know, I cleared my calendar. People that worked for me were extremely loyal, and they still are. I have people who worked 30, 40 years, and they're now retiring, and doggone it. And You're still going, though. And so I go to the legislature, and it, it, I didn't even know where the bathrooms were. You know how, gosh, that first year down there. I, I, but I had a mentor there, okay? There were two mentors, actually. Those people, without those, those people, other legislators... And yes, lobbyists, I couldn't have even made it. You've done so much, and you have so much energy towards life, and you're still doing things. You're still down at the antler every day. So what has been, has there been a guiding philosophy for you throughout your life? If so, what is that? Oh, I think it's uh, Proverbs 4 and 5. It says, uh, to gain wisdom, gain understanding. And I always added to that, get going. Can you elaborate on what that means to you? Uh, you know, in, in my life, I just went to work every day. 
And I have some regrets. I'll always have regrets because I don't think I spent enough time with my children. It's the eternal conflict that women have while raising a family and running businesses. Did they turn all right? You bet. They're wonderful, wonderful individuals, and they may not feel like that. But I was, could not be the original prototype of the cooking, baking mom, although I can bake cookies. <laughs> but I spent a great deal of time in business. That's the pride of, pride of a good job and pride of being part of something that's going somewhere. And tried as it may seem, it's to be able to be part of progress instead of afraid of progress. And it was a challenge to me to be able to do that. And in my philosophy about making others feel good, it also makes you feel good. It is the eternal perspective of saying to honor your neighbor, and that helps you to build self-esteem. And I really believe that. Okay, now why do I go to work every day? Because it needs done. Why do I go to work every day? Because my children are raised. They don't, they don't need me. <laughs> I had the ability, if, if I had any ability, of bringing people together so that we could build, not by pushing others down, but by standing on each other's shoulders. And I really think that without that support, there's no way on earth that I could have developed my potential. And, and I go to work every day because I feel good going to work. I felt good last night because there was a bus broken down and I could help find a new bus. I felt good that one of my employees jumped in the car and drove clear to Salt Lake today to bring a motor back. I think it's because I have felt fulfilled. I would like to say this. My mother taught me that the greatest gift in life that we'll ever have is the gift of contentment. And I'm a contented person. And I want to convey that attitude that you can do it and you can be happy with the balancing act of life so at 84 years old next saturday okay i hope god gives me a few days i need a lot more days than that I have all that stuff to do yet and uh, but, um, but i want to do some writing and i have done a lot of writing but i want my progenity and anybody that cares to know how i thought more than what I did. That's how I feel. Number one piece of advice for anyone wanting to get into business or maybe have that successful, successful, contented life. Well, you have to believe in yourself and you have to be willing to take the advice of others and you have to find an awfully good banker. That was Clarine Law. And her story concludes the first chapter of Profiles for Women in Wyoming. Be sure to check out womeninwyoming.com where you'll see Clarine's full profile and portraits, as well as all the other stories from the series, and subscribe for updates so you know when we're back from our next production run. We're also on Instagram at womeninwyo. You can now also nominate women who inspire you. We want to hear from you, and we want your recommendations for women across the state who are shaping Wyoming through their thinking and actions. Go to our website and click the Nominate tab to get started. This project is supported in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council and the Equipoise Fund. Momentum is our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. To find out more how you can help support this project by sponsoring a profile or making a tax-deductible contribution, go to our website at womeninwyoming.com or send us an email to support at womeninwyoming.com. Thanks again for tuning in over the course of the series. I 
Hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've loved getting to know these women and getting their stories and voices on record. I'm Lindsay Linton-Buck, and you've been listening to Women in Wyoming. Women in Wyoming.